Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Hey, thanks for um, calling in today. My pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, and why don't we start with having you introduce yourself and your, um, yeah, your consulting practice, but also just I think the story of how you've gotten to where you are is pretty fascinating too. Yeah, happy to do that. So maybe I'll do a quick blurb on where I am now, and then and then backtrack. That sounds great. So I. Um, Joined a colleague here in town, Susan Hamill, who has a 20-year history of doing nonprofit and investment consulting to foundations here in town. Um, and she comes more from the program side and um, cut her teeth actually uh, forming credentials, uh, program-related investment program back in the 90s. So she has a long history in social purpose investing. Mm-hmm. Um, I had spent the prior decade, until joining Susan here, uh, working for a national investment consulting firm, and um, about a quarter of our clients there uh, were institutions that had some sort of a mission orientation that ranged from community foundations to global relief organizations to um, some of the non-profit hospitals that have a, a religious orientation will have a, uh, you know, we'll look at spread through their investment portfolio. So we were a traditional investment consultants in kind of Cambridge, Mercer, a model um, and often competing with them. And, and I built our practice around what we call responsible investing to try to be a, an umbrella for all that, but it really focused on impact investing. And um, saw a lot of interesting trends, you know, where on the one hand, each organization defined their impact pretty specifically, so it was very difficult for a consultant um, to build a practice because there wasn't a whole lot of overlap between clients in a, in a way that made business sense. But on the other hand, this is a market that really benefits from an institutional mindset and kind of a translation skill, right? Because mm-hmm. um, oftentimes impact investors speak some mix of foundation and investment speak or, you know, grant making and investment speak and, and the investors get turned off by the grant making side and the grant makers get turned off by the investment mm-hmm. side. So if you can play that kind of intermediary role, um, it's quite valuable. And um, Susan had been under the support or with the support of the Bush Foundation, which is a, a big player in um, innovation here in our region, as well as Otto Bremer and um, the McKnight Foundation. Um, she had been doing some work in mapping ecosystems here in, in local and feedback investing, and that was generating a lot of interesting projects. And so that was a, an impetus for me as I was seeing the writing on the wall at my, my prior firm that, that we weren't going to be able to get to the depth I wanted to do and, and what you do in, in, to be successful as an investor is you, is you specialize. And uh, so I thought I could specialize by region, and so I jumped out to join her. Um, I and don't now have just, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just I'm going to interrupt because I don't, if people won't know what region you're in, so. Ah, okay, got yeah. it. Yeah. So the, um, we're in, based in the Twin Cities. Right. Um, of Minneapolis, St. Paul. And so our, our region comprises Minnesota, and then we have a, a, a bit of interest in, in neighboring states, uh, but we don't venture as far as Chicago. 
Right. Well, and Chicago kind of has its own deal, you know, but yeah, but us in Wisconsin, we like you. <laughs> well, that's good. We like you too. And, and I think, you know, the Twin Cities kind of pledges above its weight from a, a quantity both of, of foundations and, and interested corporate, mm-hmm. as well as CDFIs, community development financial institutions and other sort of on the ground lenders. Um, so it's, it's a ripe market for coordination and then that that's been a, a big part of our our business is, is I think about cogent consulting we have three main business lines one we work with select entrepreneurs to help them to uh, accelerate their business growth through engaging non-traditional capital right if you if you want to go raise venture capital money we're not going to be able to help you if you want to go raise grants that's not really our ability either but if you look if you have some sort of a revenue generating business model as a nonprofit or a um, or a for-profit with a heavy mission orientation, we can help position you and, and coordinate with our contacts in the um, impact investing universe to get you more balanced capital that will mm-hmm. be a more sustainable growth profile. Um, and then we also work on the other end with investors that are interested mm-hmm. in sourcing investments and understanding how to build a portfolio and what are the, the, the kind of tripwires and, and challenges around thinking about this impact investing um, from an institutional perspective um, and building a, a thoughtful portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in the middle, we have this sort of networking and uh, coordination role. Uh, Susan is executive in residence for impact investing at the Minnesota Council on Foundation. Mm-hmm. And then we also have the ecosystem project, which was funded by the Bush Foundation, which I mentioned earlier, that is uh, seeking to gather and ignite and coordinate uh, activity in a, in a democratic fashion. And I think that's a key aspect of our community that's been positive is that because the area isn't dominated by a single foundation, we're able to do um, more kind of crowdsourced initiatives rather than having people feel like they're, you know, trailing along like ducklings behind mama duck. Right. Right. So, um, so really if I had to like the hundred thousand foot view is, um, what what was so interesting to me when I met you was talking about um, the degree of sophistication you guys are bringing to impact investing. And, um, you know, I think that that's really important for some of the um, emerging agriculture um, mm-hmm. opportunities right now. Um, but And food, too, just food and more generally, um, but definitely the emerging ag stuff. So uh, it, it occurs to me that we should do another definition here because um, I'm not sure that everybody who's listening will understand what you meant by a, a program-related investment or a PRI. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so program-related investments are, are a, a, a very underutilized tool. Um, so if you think about a foundation, they have... Uh, two pools of money. They have their investment pool, which is sort of 95% of their money, and then they're required to grant out somewhere between 5 and 4 and 6% on an annual basis to kind of get to a 5% spend. Um, and typically what happens is investments live in a separate part of the conversation and a separate team that manages them, and then the bulk of the staff is on the program side. And um, grants are a powerful source of capital for a lot of organizations, but they do set up a sort of dependency relationship for the recipient, right, where you have to go out and raise the money every 
couple of years or year, depending on how they're structured. And, and actually, foundations have gotten stricter and stricter about people uh, coming back to them. And so it's a very difficult kind of treadmill for an organization to build a growth path on. What a program-related investment is, is it counts out of your grant spend as a foundation, but it can be structured as really any kind of a security. Um, and because your anchor um, as a grant maker is a negative 100% return rate, giving money away, mm-hmm. any even modest return from a program-related investment is an is a you know an improvement right. over the negative 100% return from a from a you know a, that perspective, right? From an impact standpoint, we'll set that aside. There's there's going to be differences there. Um, what what program-related investments are very good at is is that they can take an organization that hasn't had experience with debt and servicing debt and, and demonstrating financials in the same way that an investor would need and kind of builds the training wheels to get them there. Mm-hmm. And so especially for organizations that are exploring a, a revenue-generating model or have something that's, that's kind of working for them, it's a great way to say, okay, we'll give you 1% debt, 3% debt for five years with pretty simple payment terms and pretty simple covenants, and you can build your capacity. So at the end of that period, you pay us off out of, out of your earned income, and then you can go back to the market and say, look, here's what we got. I can go to a CDFI. I can go to any other kind of a lender and be a much more robust credit mm-hmm. and get better terms. So um, so a PRI um, can be – so foundations do that. Um, it's out of their investment side, so it's an investment for the, for the um, foundation. And then yeah. – um, these can be nonprofits who have programs and for-profit businesses or a farm, right? In theory, That's correct. So, so to clarify, it actually it comes out of the grant spend. Okay. Um, so it, it it doesn't come out of the investment side, mm, um, mm-hmm. and and then it it recycles back. So if you think about how, as an organization, if you're granting out and, and they, you take one percent of your five percent and, and and do it as a PRI, when that PRI returns in year five you are then required to grant out that additional amount. So it, it can kind of snowball and increase. Oh, I see. Yeah. Grant capacity. Um, I see. So it is considered part of the, I don't know, the spend of the foundation, if that makes that's sense. The right, that's the right word. Exactly. Okay, perfect. And the only constraint on a program-related investment, which is different from grants, right? Grants can only go to nonprofits mm-hmm. or, or be executed by a nonprofit, you know, through a nonprofit as fiscal agent kind of mm-hmm. structure. Um, but the only restriction for a PRI is that it has to satisfy charitable purpose of the organization. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's an IRS definition. So for profit businesses, farms, um, food companies, anything can receive a PRI as long as it aligns, you know, that, that underlying business's um, focus aligns with a charitable purpose. I see. Yeah, so um, in theory, then, this could be a really powerful um, source of funding for some of the um, the emerging agriculture things that I'm thinking about, like in regenerative agriculture, for example. Exactly right. We, we've been using them with one of our clients here in town that is in the regenerative agriculture space. Uh, mm-hmm. The Main Street Project cool. um, has been actively seeking um, PRIs and received a series of PRIs to be able to um, to scale their platform, uh, and they're a very interesting model where there's an underlying nonprofit that's built a lot of intellectual property around a, a particular system, and they're 
now have bought a farm to enable them to be uh, controlled demonstration, mm. and then it'll be a training facility that other pharmacists won't get to, and and then we're seeking you know uh, more traditional financing for those farmers that adopt this system, mm. so that they can they can get access to land and and build the system. And it's, a, it's a poultry centered regenerative agriculture system, and the poultry really helps to kind of jumpstart cash flow, mm-hmm. and that's what made it really exciting to us right. from an impact investment standpoint. Is is it's not just sort of the incremental benefit of, of being, you know, converting row crops from conventional to organic. There's a there's another form of cash flow, and and the chickens, you know, play a very dynamic role in improving soil quality mm-hmm. and and uh, sort of creates this kind of flywheel effect. That sure, helps the farmer make the transition. Sure, yeah. There's nothing quite as powerful as chicken poop. It turns out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, who would thought? I have a client who built a, um, he, you know, he's a biodynamic farmer. And like when he did the build cost build up for one of these chickens, it was ridiculously expensive. So he built up this, he took this old shed and started um, essentially cultivating flies in it because (laughs) chickens eat in a serious way, though, not in a just a random way. And it put it on wheels and it follows the chickens around. It's kind of a hoot, but they love it. Apparently, they love the insects. So I think that's, you know, more promising than putting insects in tomato sauce, actually. <laughs> Let the chickens eat them. Right, right, right. Move it up the food chain. Right. Right. Right, right. So what I find interesting about that story is in food um, and agriculture, people get, people don't talk about business model the way you just did, right? So you liked it because of the cash flow of the chickens, um, we, you know, the people in the food and ag business would start immediately talking about either the chickens or the farm instead of the model, cash flow mm-hmm. model, right? So, right. yeah. And that's where that, that translation process, I think, is super useful, right? Because um, there's, there's a whole market of potentially socially beneficial businesses that, that are trying to figure out how to message. Mm-hmm. and. So finding ways to uh, communicate that message in lots of different languages, right? In the language of finance, mm-hmm. in the language of investing, in the language of marketing, um, you know, and, and it's, it's really an evolving um, skill set. Mm-hmm. And um, But I think it's going to be key to a, a regenerative transition of our economy mm-hmm. um, because until people can identify the, the sort of externalized costs of their traditional way of buying stuff and the typical products that they're getting their hands on, mm-hmm. it's going to be really hard to, to differentiate ourselves. Right. And I, I think for the businesses, so um, I tell people when I started Tara's Way that I um, raised $14 million and I, I didn't actually even have my product designed yet. What mm-hmm. I had when what I was selling was a business model that was based on a factory and it, you know, and, the, and without the factory, you couldn't have organic way. So, and then we would have a big bulk business and then we'd have a brand that was smaller and, um, and actually would come later. So it, 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 I was selling a business model and I think mm-hmm. for social impact people, this is a hard concept, right? They're, you know, they're, they want to, 
they're they're motivated by changing the world, and so they go out to raise money talking about changing the world instead of how this thing is going to cash flow. I think that's very true, and and I think there's there's room for both. Mm-hmm. Um, and but but your thing about messaging was so powerful because it's the same business. You're just messaging differently to different audiences. Exactly, and that, and that's, I think that's the key point is that. Um, we're not asking people to change how they think about their social mission. We're, we're, we're asking them to think critically about how that social mission can be um, self-financing in a way that allows that mission to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, because my feeling is that you know, even before the tax policy challenges that, that, that have come down the pike with, with the new budget structure and right. tax bill, um, the, the philanthropy is never going to solve these problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a significant debate within philanthropy about is granting enough, right? Mm-hmm. Because if 95% of your money is just perpetuating some of the problems you're trying to solve, that's a, a, dif- that's a difficult math to overcome. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and, and, and certainly that impact investing has changed that, but the the argument remains within philanthropy that we still have to meet a seven, eight, nine percent aggregate return target for that ninety-five percent mm-hmm. in order to be able to increase our grant making. Right. Um, and I, I feel like there's just a handful of foundations that have figured out. Well, if we if we cut that return target down a little bit, but do a ton of impact investing, then actually we're going to have more impact. Right. We won't, we won't be sacrificing. We'll be sacrificing. We won't have a billion dollar endowment. In 10 mm-hmm. years. We might have a $700 million endowment in 10 years, but we'll have done more. You know, twice as much, or whatever the math is, you know, but a, more, a much more significant impact mm-hmm. on our community. And mm-hmm. especially as we think about moving from nonprofits that are really grant reliant mm-hmm. to nonprofits that become an industry unto themselves. And there's many that already are, but. Mm-hmm. but that is a business model that is net income focused and, and you know, earned revenue focused. Um, the potential for a real expansion of that side of the economy, I think, is much more material. Yeah, and I, I'm excited about um, about the possibilities of seeing more of this money, um, foundation PRI money coming into food and agriculture, because there's a class. Now I'm not talking about a nonprofit. Now I'm talking Mm -hmm. about a for-profit entity, but there's, there are kind of a whole class of potentially high impact startups in things like regenerative agriculture, where the biological system underlying the farm takes years to change, right? Mm -hmm. This is way beyond just the organic, you know, three Mm -hmm. years. I mean, to really see these farms thrive takes 10 to 20 years, and you need seriously patient capital to engage with those to make that work. Exactly right. And that's, that's where foundations as a perpetual organization are, you know, perfectly situated. Absolutely. There's a, there's a, yeah, there's a number of sort of challenges to um, our current financial system for individuals to be able to invest that kind of long term. Although I think, you know, in, in, 
if I ran the zoo, mm-hmm. right, an individual would be also the perfect because they're going to have that personal relationship with that borrower. Mm-hmm. Um, but things like program-related investments are a, a fabulous tool to um, extend term and lower interest rates or go interest-free you know, interest for the first couple of years. You can really write the terms that you want to mm-hmm. and meet the needs of the farmers and the, and the food entrepreneurs that need that kind of runway mm-hmm. because the effect is going to be so large. Um, the, the only way that, that I've seen it work for individuals so far has been through donation funds. So basically, like a, um, in our region, and actually in South Minnesota, renewing the countryside set up the Grow a Farmer Fund, managed by a community development financial institution that does all of the, the back end accounting. But what they do is, is Individuals participate in the fund and receive a tax deduction. It, it, it functions like a you know a nonprofit that you would donate. But then so that they're taking donations makes, into the fund. Yep, that yeah. that entity then makes loans to mm-hmm. uh, the small the farm businesses, especially kind of in the sort of five to fifteen thousand dollar range, right? To get that extra piece of equipment to so they're micro loans. They're micro loans, mm-hmm. so it works. It looks a little bit like Kiva, mm-hmm. um, but instead of the individual farmer having to kind of put themselves forward mm-hmm. um, on a platform and then kind of have a bake off, it's it's more curated. Where mm-hmm. the grow a farmer farm goes out and picks the right farmers and right. kind of runs it like a like a fund manager would. Where yeah, Kiva is more kind of crowdsourced. And they do um, some technical assistance too, right? They do, exactly. Yeah. And coordinating technical assistance mm-hmm. is a key element of all of this. And, mm-hmm. and there's been really interesting things learned about what the microloan market and, and the need for that, right? Because I think mm-hmm. microloans are typically associated with emerging markets or you know, global south or whatever the terminology that, that you want to use. Emerging markets is the finance word and I guess global south is the, the uh, program side word. But micro businesses in those kinds of markets, um, and it hasn't really caught on here because um, there is a pretty established lending market kind of one step above it. But mm-hmm. what people are, are realizing is that there's a real need for fifteen to $50,000 kind of loans to get people going mm-hmm. so they can get to the scale where they can take on the seventy five to 100000 that they get from a CDFI or from a... Um, uh, Agstar or another bank, um, and so if we can fill that gap with individual money, where there's that personal relationship um, and that sort of community capital, right? And in, mm-hmm. in, in not in maybe in a, you know partially a money sense, but it's also the sort of social capital of that. Um, that to me is a pretty exciting to kind of prime the pump to build the the, the conduit. But you need to be able to show the business owners and the entrepreneurs that there's a road here. So this isn't just like, okay, we're going to give you $15,000 and then you're on your own. There's technical assistance support to your comment. There's someone else that can lend you when you get to the next scale and right. you can kind of see the business develop, right? Um, and what was interesting about the Grow Pharma Fund is that, that that conversation takes time. It takes years to kind of have iterative conversations with farmers to get them comfortable with something new because they're used to you know, being on the short end of the stick mm-hmm. from, from most of the lenders that they have to deal with mm-hmm. and running a business with really difficult margins. Right. Um, 
So when you can combine technical assistance, when you can add, you know, chickens, mm-hmm. you know, or some kind of a system that they can plug into that that generates the cash flow that enables them to take on growth, it's really exciting. Yeah. So one of the things here in, in um in the southern part of Wisconsin, uh, we have a couple of um, investors who are, it's really interesting. They, um, both of them experienced this when they had summer homes in Florida, um, where this is more common for real estate. They're um, called self-directed IRAs. Mm-hmm. And they had moved money into self-directed IRAs, and so instead of investing their IRA funds in Wall Street, they are investing personally through their IRAs. Um, I think that has incredible potential that we don't even we haven't even begun to get our heads around. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly because the the transition that's happening at the macro level is that. We're going from uh, private pensions um, to 401k plans and IRA plans. Mm-hmm. And, and we hit the tipping point three or four years ago, I think I saw the figures, where there's more money in individual accounts than there is in the big pension. Wow. Um, and yeah. they, were, they were a huge source of investment activity, right? The, the mm, absolutely. They had a, a, a fabulously long time horizon. They could, they could do more innovative things. It tended to be private equity and it tended to be pretty extractive because that was the sort of the reality of that market. But as they're shrinking, they're getting more pressure to be more responsive to their underlying constituents and so are engaging in um, impact investing kind of on the margin. Mm-hmm. Um, but individuals are always faster, right? right. I, I saw this starting kind of five years ago when impact investing took off. was like, Foundations have been doing impact investing for years in lots of different forms. They called it lots of different things, so it kind of flew under the radar. It really took off in the aftermath of the crisis of 2008 because, as an organization, you saw your, you know, if you're a foundation, you saw your ability to grant make go down by at least a third, if not half, as your portfolio shrunk, and you saw your need grow. And so you said, okay, i got to do something else besides just give away 5% of this freaking pool of money. Mm-hmm. And... Family offices kind of followed in, and what's interesting about family offices and especially individuals is where a foundation or a pension has a series of layers of bureaucracy, right, that make the decision process institutional, in right. air quotes. Mm-hmm. Individuals can really just say, I like this idea, and I'm going to take 5% of my portfolio, 1% of my portfolio, 10% of my portfolio, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. Advisor, help me. Right. And so... Switch the feet, right? So the foundations have been building and building slowly and had all this kind of experience with it. And then the families and the individuals came along and said, wait a minute, I like this idea. Mm-hmm. Okay. Boom, I'm just going to do it. And that's really what slow money is about in a lot of ways is why are we investing in something far away that's destroying our world mm-hmm. um, when we could be investing in close things that are sustaining our world? Right. Well, and uh, what I what I've a um, couple of things I find interesting about that is what that that with the self directed IRA folks, um, it's kind of the inspired by slow money around. It, yeah. Now this is around here, but it's actually faster money, which is kind of ironic. 
And they're not doing it for 0% interest, which is one of the things that um, mm-hmm. that people in the slow money movements talk about. Um, and I honestly think has impeded participation in this because the people who are most active are getting a decent return on this money. That's why they're doing it. It's their yep. IRA, right? You can't invest your retirement money at 0% interest and still retire. So somehow this has to work, right? The economic model has to work for everybody. Yeah, and I think that that risk sharing is really um, important. Um, and what I see is that at, at different sizes and stages of development, companies can take on different kinds of capital mm-hmm. and attract different kinds of investments, right? So donation capital and 0% loans are great for kind of exploratory, you know, just starting farmers, exploratory food businesses. But once you've got revenue, you can't justify it. Mm-hmm. And that's when the IRA money comes in. So mm-hmm. when I think about it from an individual, like if, if you know, if, if I could pull all my money out of my 401k, uh, unfortunately, I haven't figured out how to do that yet. You have to set up an individual IRA. From yeah, the, you have to do these self-directed right IRAs. Yeah. yeah you, you, I can't do it through Wells Fargo. No. Oh, yeah. Um, but if I was going to do it, I would take, I would set aside a certain portion of money that I was going to make as donation capital, and I'd work with a tax advisor, right, to understand how, mm-hmm. how much I need to do to, to get the tax benefit. And the rest, I would, I would use to support the later stage kind of companies and, mm-hmm. and socially responsible investments mm-hmm. down the line. And that's, we're talking. Trillions and trillions of dollars. I, I remember right. Yeah, it's it's a huge amount of money that is it is yeah. um, you know, and and people are feeling like they're stuck investing. You know, like I have no choice. I got to do it on the market. You know, in Wall right. Street and exactly. yeah, yeah, and and it, we don't even really have anybody in Wisconsin who is a, a fiduciary for a self directed IRA. I mean, it's apparently a lot more common in Florida. Okay. Yeah, used for real estate. I, I've mm-hmm. um, predominantly for real estate investing, and mm-hmm. I've um, been digging around. And I don't know if you guys have anybody in Minnesota, but it's it's like we don't even have the infrastructure to really support this mm-hmm. kind of investing. But I, I would love to see a lot more of it happening. Yeah, crowdfunding is another way, and that's mm-hmm. a rapidly evolving universe. Um, and um, there's a couple things. So, so up until recently, you could only do it within your state, but that, I believe, is changing this spring is when, the, when the, you can start to invest across state borders. Right, right. You, can, you don't have to be an accredited investor anymore, which is a huge, mm-hmm. you know, it really opens it to a much broader range of people because the, the number of accredited investors is, is smaller, mm-hmm. and they tend to be pretty aggressive with their money mm-hmm. because they're seeking to, you know, they... they typically got it from either, you know, a high-paying job and or having run a business, and so they take a much more uh, growth-oriented approach, which doesn't often fit food and farm businesses. Mm-hmm. There's certain stages of food and farm businesses that can be growthy, but but a lot of it is more steady, kind of sustainable, you know, small business rather than startup kind of profile. Right. And so crowdfunding has gotten a lot of press, and it's, it's a pretty interesting idea, but so the research that I've seen so far is as, a, as an entity, if you want to raise crowdfunding as a, as a business, 
you need to bring your own crowd. Right. Um, you have so to bring your own crowd yeah. and you yep. have to be a C Corp and you have all these disclosure requirements and stuff. And so it's, I mean, it's been the regulatory, the rulemaking around it has made it very difficult for a small company to do. Right. I have one client who've used it. Mm-hmm. it yeah, and I think it, it's great for those folks that it works for, but it's, mm-hmm. not, it's not a huge problem solver. Yeah, it, 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 yeah. And, and I think, but things like using those kinds of platforms to surface investment opportunities that, that don't qualify mm-hmm. or, or um, so using the same kind of an approach. Because one of the things that I think is really interesting um, about crowdfunding relative to funds, right, because most people invest their IRAs through funds, is that a fund you're paying in a, an outside manager to pick the investment opportunities for you, where crowdfunding, Kiva, you know, these other kinds of um, alternative investing sources or opportunities are you you choose the individual investments you make. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a much more democratic and really benefits the social capital aspect of the, the engagement that it offers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also raises some risk because people tend to fall in love with individual ideas and, and don't, you know, and can take a lot of risk by concentrating their portfolio on individual investment opportunities. Right. Um, and so trying to find a balance between those two. And, and I think um, that's where I hope the investment advisor industry will pick up the slack. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, they. I think if they're going to remain relevant, they're going to have to, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I could do yeah. TD Ameritrade if all I want to do is, like, trade, right? Right, exactly right, yeah. But if you're going to find me opportunities and help me think critically about how they fit into an overall whole and um, am I meeting my goals, mm-hmm. I, need, I need something more. I think the robo-advisors are a, are a step in that direction, but they're going to have, you know, the, the key challenge with any code-based algorithm is it's only as good as the code. Right. Um, it, and um, the, the, the assumptions that are built into that and coming out of a traditional finance background, having spent, so I came to finance after 10 years as a carpenter and musician. And it's so probably great I, preparation, actually. <laughs> It was because it's all math, right? Right. You know, <laughs> carpentry is base 12 and music is, you know, threes and fours. I was a perfectionist. And so, um, and then finance is all negative numbers because they're, you know, extracting fees. Um, <laughs> but I thought, I, I was struck by how much group think there is in traditional finance. There's a, a whole system of education. Uh, it starts with the Ivy League schools and then especially goes through the business schools. And there's really a, a canonical approach to how to think about investing that um, is pretty antithetical to sustainability. It's trying to figure out how to adapt to it, but it, it's very begrudging. Mm-hmm. I have a personal story about that because my I have a son who um, is a finance professor, and he got his Ph.D. in finance at Stanford. And um, and I run something called the Food Finance Institute, right? It kind of runs in the yep. family. Except 
what he does is so different than what I do. So what I do at the Food Finance Institute is so, you know, hands-on practical, like let's get ready to raise money in this particular sector, which is food and agriculture, right? And it's very nitty-gritty. And what he teaches and what he learned, and, you know, he's a quantitative guy, mm -hmm. the models he builds, everything is not practical at all. It's not even interesting to people in finance what I do, except that what I do is actually get money into companies. It's kind of right. crazy, and right? feed them so that they can go do their work. Yeah. Right. It's sort of crazy. It is quite crazy. And I think um, that that's why you know, part of that group think, and especially that the, the career risk, you know, which is the least talked about of the financial risks, is, is the idea that you... If you fail conventionally, you take no flack. But if you fail unconventionally, mm -hmm. or even if you succeed convention unconventionally, then you're you're out on a limb. And it it I think it contributes very directly to these sort of boom and bust cycles in finance because mm -hmm. you go along to get along, and people's personal personal wallet drive their decision-making in ways that are, that are very seldom talked about at any kind of scale. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if we can turn that around, right, and that's, I think, what flow money and, and what you're trying to do with finance is sort of turn that around to say, put your money into your local community where you're actually going to see and, and feel the benefits of it. And so the sort of extractive nature of the overall financial system uh, will have much less effect on you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the wisdom of crowds among the finance people may not be so wise. That's my take. Um. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we're in this world of social impact investing in, this, in the various domains that we've been talking about. And now one of the things I found so interesting in talking to you was um, because of your background in um, in the you know, the big leagues here. Um, when you are talking about impact investing, you are wading into this issue of it means, you know, something different to everybody. And we need to come up with some, a rubric that we could all share that would help us understand social impact or evaluate it. Yeah. And I think the sustainable development goals have an interesting element where they are being adopted across a range of participants, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it's a 17 kind of focus area framework so you can really um, get relatively specific about lots of different stuff where kind of ESG, environmental social and governance investing was, was just too nebulous for people to wrap their heads around. So getting right, I can't even helps. keep up with all the words. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And And so what, what's interesting is that corporates have figured out that this is a language that their shareholders want to mm -hmm. hear from them in. And what that does is then it, that filters down through the economy in, in really interesting ways because all the private businesses that hope to be bought by a public then have to kind of adopt that language. And it's, it's a framework that also works for small companies and in impact investing and in one of the things that we really struggled with back in my days at my consulting job was there wasn't any framework to be able to look at an entire portfolio because of how differently 
private and public investments are measured. Mm-hmm. And, and so to have this and have it focus on sustainability is, is, a, is a double win, right? Mm-hmm. Because number one, you've got a single language, and number two, it's in the blend of sustainability and development, right? Sustainable development goals. And so um, I'm quite excited about the, the potential for that to become a common language that um, that everyone can use and that you can sort of, you know, whenever you have an investment opportunity, there's a kind of a, you know, a little chart that shows here's the 17 goals and it's bright on two or three of them and dim on two, you know, mm-hmm. five or six of them and, and, and you can kind of say, okay, this is where it falls and then you take, okay, these are my interest areas. How does this line up with my interest areas? Right. And you, have a, you have a nice kind of overlap and, and that's a real simple structure. Yeah, and I think it would be super useful because there is, you know, I don't know, um, impact investing is means something different right now to everybody who says they do it, right? Exactly right. And I think the challenge is that many people want to create a single definition, and, and I would argue that we need we need we need a framework of mm-hmm. seventeen, right? That that each, each people can speak the same language, but they're not going to have the same definition, yeah. Because Certain organizations, you know, the Minneapolis Foundation has a very specific focus on a specific region and on economic development, mm-hmm. which is very different from a, you know, an, an environmental organization mm-hmm. that, that has a national or, or a global event. So, um, so this sustainable development goals um, structure, is that, where is that coming from? Like Coming out of the United Nations. Okay. So they, they, they drove that um, as a system... Um, and it, it's been part of the, the COP20, COP21, uh, COP22 um, program and, and has been interpreted as a, a kind of a global framework for understanding what, what are the key challenges the world faces over the next 15 or so years mm-hmm. and um, a mechanism to drive investment in solutions to those Mm-hmm. So in a certain way, um, investment managers are, are viewing the sustainable development goals as sort of mandates, you know, or, or specific shopping lists to mm-hmm. go out and, and, and find investment opportunities because they recognize that there's going to be significant capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly Europe as, an, as a whole and in the European pensions are, are further ahead of the U.S. Mm-hmm. in terms of adopting and integrating these processes, um, but it's catching on. So if something like this, um, I, I don't know if this is breaking down, but in the past with this, the sheer magnitude of what pension funds were doing, right, if the pension funds adopt something, then other people follow suit. Is that true for something like this? So suddenly the pension for fund for California adopts it, and then, you know what I mean? Then it creates this momentum for something. Does that that's happen? Cer- that's certainly the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not clear entirely. Um, it's a little bit different in that um, the leadership now is coming from publicly listed corporate companies. Interesting. Um, where a lot of the folks, like when, when the SRI and that, that was sort of, the, the corporates were dragged into that. This mm-hmm. is more seen as a business opportunity by a lot of folks uh, in, in the C-suite of large corporations. And, and 
they're kind of qualifying their their um, business value based on how they address these goals. Yeah, so I read this morning that Unilever has given notice to um, social media um, players like Facebook and Twitter that they are no longer going to be running advertisements with with platforms mm. that are causing social havoc, basically, for not policing what is getting posted. Um, I think that is really interesting to me because I know Unilever is quite a activist kind of organization, right. actually, right? And exactly. yeah, and and I can see this coming kind of out of this same energy in these companies, right? Exactly, and, and in that way, it um, it's more powerful to me because it's being driven by sort of a, a need to justify your your right to do business as an, as an organization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's almost an existential threat in a certain way, some of the, the challenges that we face, where 20 years ago it was more a conceptual threat. And, mm -hmm. and the, the sad thing is that we got to where we are now because of sitting on our hands for the last 20 years. Right. Um, but we are here now. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's, I think, why things like Slow Money and... Um, investing downstream is, is also gaining strength. Because as I think about the last 20 years as an investor, right, if, if you were starting out in 1998, you know, you saw your portfolio probably cut in half in 2001, you saw it cut in half again in 2008. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of thinking, you know, why would I want to participate in a, a Right, a it casino? feels like Russian, exactly, it feels like Russian roulette. Yeah, and, and mm -hmm. there's lots of underlying dynamics that have changed how investing happens that, that make it um, more or less volatile. And there's lots of arguments. That, that's what your son is as, as a professor. Is, is right. That, 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 those are the big arguments. But ultimately what it leads to is, is if I can invest in my local community, in a local farm, um, you know, and participate in their CSA or whatever it is, and I see, I see a financial return, a social return, an environmental return, and I get food on my table. Mm -hmm. I'm much more interested in, in accepting a 5% return on that rather than a 15% mm -hmm. return on that because I know it's going to be there uh, because I, it, it's a tangible entity that I have a personal relationship mm -hmm. with. Yeah, and, and that's why the self-directed IRA is, uh, is so powerful, right? Because... Yeah. You know, uh, we've been dutifully putting our money into those bloody things, and now we can't get at it, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. When I um, when I launched Tara's Way, the local paper here, the weekly paper, had had a picture of me on the cover. So if you Google Tara Johnson, this is what comes up. It's me in a hairnet, sadly. Um, but it, it said Tara Tara Johnson's big idea was the was the header on it, the headline. And I'm still the big idea thing here because I, I want to see, I want to th see us thinking bigger about applying, um, um, I, I don't know if you, this sustainable development lens um, mm. to investing on a bigger scale so we can get regenerative agriculture on a bigger scale. Mm -hmm. 
I, when I work with farm enterprises now, I don't have a single one that has not been impacted by severe climate variability already. This isn't something that's 20 years from now or 100 years from now. It's actually here. It's right here right now. It's right here right now. And we, there are, you know, this is the regenerative ag stuff. Um, I think CSAs and things are wonderful, and I support them, and I love small farms, but we need this to happen on a bigger scale, faster, also. And one of the things that I struggle with, right, is that part of the problem with the agricultural system for the last 50 years has been this focus on increasing scale to mm-hmm. survive and mechanization, and I think of it as, as extraction, right? Mm-hmm. We've been basically treating our soils like we treat the, under, the underwater oil reservoirs, and we kind of suck the nutrients out, we try to reapply them, but it's not really working. So, so um, I guess I would, I would argue with that. There, there's a yeah. company in Wisconsin called Midwest Bioag who is working with, um, on the you know, thousand acre scale. And if you go to that farm, um, the the test farm for Midwest Bioag, um, I was on a farm that's been, it's an organic dairy farm, but it's also their test site. Um, they were getting a fifth cutting of hay this year. Um, they have, they intercrop crops, right? So you're walking through a field and it has daikon radish and they've already harvested beans and it had wheat in it. In the same field it was interplanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is how yeah. we can do this and that is massively sequestering carbon. So, and that is at a thousand acres. They're working with um, uh, one of the big food companies in your neck of the woods to do a wheat farm like that at 10,000 acres. So I think I think we have limited our horizon in the world of sustainable agriculture by being emotionally attached to small farms. I think there are other things that need funding than just I, I small. I agree with that. It, it is it is going to be, you know, kind of a many flowers bloom approach. Absolutely, and we've lost. I mean, maybe if we had a hundred years to do this, we could have done it with small farms, and we've sort of lost that opportunity. I think. So, just humor me a bit. If we wanted yeah. to, if we wanted to um, mobilize impact investing to accelerate larger scale regenerative agriculture, like I'm describing, what would that look like? I think that you know it is things like Midwest Bioag and these kinds of. Um, research development platforms that can be replicated. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's that, I, I hesitate to use the word franchise, but it's that, that ability to, uh, you know, take what you've learned in one place and apply it somewhere else that generates the kind of scale um, and both that is investable and that is um, problem solving. Right. From an environmental standpoint. And, you know, Main Street has an interesting, Main Street Project has an interesting angle on that in that they're, they're trying to do it from a small farm cluster, right? Mm-hmm. So their idea is we get 20 100-acre farms or 20 50-acre farms, and that gets us to our 1,000. They're all polyculture and kind of, you know, think about the, the Fisher-Price mm-hmm. farm like that when you were a kid where you have the the polyculture, and that's, that's like, turns out to be a key to resiliency of the, of the mm-hmm. underlying farm. And then 
you can use much more marginal land for that kind of stuff too because you can kind of pick what you plant where places and, and it, it's kind of a remedial farm in a certain mm-hmm. sense. And then boom, they got one cluster and then okay, they go somewhere else and they, you know, they find five farmers and then the next year it's 10 and each one of them sort of builds up and you, and it becomes a sort of, you know, like a Petri dish almost, right? Right. But there's, there's sort of replication and then a new cluster starts and a new cluster starts and, and, so it's, it's an, another model mm-hmm. and investing at the, at the next level up, which is the sort of the, the, invest, the intellectual property and the financing of the cluster growth, mm-hmm. that becomes the investment opportunity. You're not asking investors to go pick a certain farmer to back, right? Right. Take, right. That, off, take that off their plate and mm-hmm. just have them invest in the system. Right. And so they're investing in an agricultural system. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, with a with an infrastructure to um, replicate it, which is at it, at its heart, that's what Midwest BioEggs is as well. And they're, you know, Gary, the the founder of that company, has um, told me that you know when he when he started, he thought he was going to be doing this because he too was a um, you know starving organic dairy farmer when he started this thing and he thought he was going to help all the organic small farmers and now it turns out that the people who are the most this is ironic the people who who are the most engaged are some of the biggest conventional agriculture producers in the world and they are because it saves them money yep. like this is why this is so crazy to me that we, we have this extractive system because people argue that this is the only way to make it economically viable when they actually do better if they don't use those practices. Exactly right. Financially. And, and that, yeah, and I think and that's a, that's a, a key tipping point, right? It's yeah. When you can demonstrate that. So that's where the many flowers bloom thing is, is that there's some people are really going to want to focus on enabling and regenerating, you know, small family mm-hmm. farms or medium-sized family farms and other folks are, are going to say, that's not important to me. I want, I want scale. Yeah. And or other people are working on that. That's not where, you know what I mean? That's yeah. kind of yeah. uh, with me. I'm always like, you know, the startup world a lot. There are a lot of people supporting startup. There are right. few people supporting scale up like I do. So mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, so for these, so for, you know, um, so a company like Midwest Bioag or somebody who's doing large-scale permaculture, right? So this is not small. This is, um, this may be, we have an example here of one that's like 250 acres of permaculture, mm. right? So it's things like hazelnuts planted at that mm. scale and water handling at that scale and, and you know, pigs and there's lots of, there's livestock and, and woody plants and all kinds of things, right? But that, that's in, those are investments that are big, right? Um, um, do you think we could get foundation money engaged with this? Because the, law, the, the, the time horizon is such an obstacle for folks to finance this kind of stuff. That's a great question, and that's, that's what we're trying to crack, right, is, is on the one side, foundations are best positioned to invest for the super long term, and, and many of them were investors in timber, for instance, which is kind of a 15 to 20 year kind of a That's asset. a great analogy, yeah. And, um, but the way that most foundations work is they have 
on a, on a you know, person-to-person ratio, they have a much smaller number of investment staff than they have uh, program staff. Mm-hmm. And so the investment staff typically work with a consultant and then also work with, uh, or even if they, they don't, they work a lot with investment managers, right? So folks that are going to go out and find Midwest Bioag and be an investor in Midwest Bioag. Mm-hmm. And so you end up needing, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 Midwest Bioag for these investment managers to pick from, mm-hmm. for that to become, a, you know, to follow the traditional pathway. Right, and they would have to be pretty big already before they would get engaged. Am I right? I mean, yeah. Well, like it's not worth it to me to evaluate a five million dollar investment. It has to be twenty or something. I've heard folks like that speak like that when I (laughs) at conferences. I'm like, really? I don't need. I don't have anybody who needs five million right now. (laughs) It's that's the. That's the key challenge is that mm-hmm. when you're talking about the 95%, right? So if you have a billion dollar endowment, you know, and you're, you're granting, you know, uh, or it's just a hundred million just to make a round number. So you're, you're going to have, you have a hundred million dollar endowment and you've got, you're going to be giving away 5 million a year. That's pretty easy to do $500,000 grants, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and kind of stay at that scale, $100,000 grants. But if you have, that 95 million that you want to put to work, you know, you're typically looking to make investments of, you know, one to 5% of your portfolio into a fund. So that means the fund itself is going to get, you know, 20 investors of a million dollars. So that's a $20 million fund at its smallest. Um, and most of the time at my old desk, we would, we would talk about funds for 10 times that big. Right. So they're looking for deals ten times right, um, and that's sort of a you know the, the small funds are interpreted as much riskier, mm-hmm. um, and there's this sort of chicken and the egg thing where you need to have funds that are going to lend a million so that you can have companies that can grow to a scale that they that they need five million and then ten million right, and so that's part of why I I, I like that we're both focused on both sides of it is is you, you, I think individual money and family money and, mm-hmm. and IRAs are a great way to get companies up to that $1 million appetite rate. And mm-hmm. then you, kind of, you have to kind of build a pipeline and an ecosystem and move it forward. Um, and, and it's interesting because, you know, the, the whole, um, the Elder Leopold Center had kind of coined this, this term egg in the middle for what's happening in agriculture. Like the really huge things are growing and the tiny stuff is growing and the middle is dying. Right. We also right. have sort of finance in the middle. Right? <laughs> right. And I think foundations are a difficult organization to, to, to get to do new stuff mm-hmm. because of the, all the different layers of bureaucracy. The program side can do new stuff much more easily than the investment mm-hmm. side in most cases mm-hmm. um, because they're used to, you know, giving away money. Right, so right. They, it's... So their anchor is negative 100%. And right. So they, they, they can do pretty innovative stuff, but they're dealing with small dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it, it is a, a very difficult situation. Yeah, I and I feel like, it. you know, I don't know all the answers to this, but I think that... 
posing the problem will get smart people like you working on it, right? That that this sort of finance in the middle for regenerative food and agriculture is something to be thinking about. Exactly right. And I, I do think it is, it is uh, there's some priming of the pump activities where you help the small fund, fund or small investment opportunities become mid-sized investment opportunities mm-hmm. so that they can get going. And then from there, people kind of pass the risk down, right? And, and you've got relatively substantial cash flows and things to look at. It becomes mm-hmm. a much easier to underwrite opportunity. And I think um, you know, smart people follow openings. Mm-hmm. And I think you're exactly right that by drawing attention to this is an opening, let's mm-hmm. solve this, is a great way to, to attract Right, smart people to to be thinking about it. And I think, ironically, Wisconsin, um, we're sort of unique because Organic Valley is based here, right? And and a company like Midwest Bioag is based here. And we, we have Aldo Leopold was here. I mean, we have this sort of conservation thing here in our culture. And as a result, we have... Um, you know, Midwest or, or Organic Valley has been around for years now, right? We have um, we have sustainable, integrative, you know, cheese plant on the farm kind of things that mm-hmm. other parts of the country are, you know, kind of new. We've got 30-year-old versions of that and people mm-hmm. who want to retire, right? Um, so yep. this, this sort of egg in the middle, finance in the middle thing is right in front of us here in a way that it, I'm not sure it is in other parts of the country. I think that's true. And, and you know, I would echo for Minnesota, we have similar things. Mm-hmm. Long history with folks like Land Lakes and other kinds of organizations. True, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and we too, like you, you have got big food company. We have companies we do too, right? So right. we have... Food as, you know, and food manufacturing and farming is, is a big portion of our, the economy in both of our states as well. So, yep. yeah. I, so I think in a way we, we, this might be a place where, God forbid, the upper Midwest has a leadership responsibility, right? It's usually coming from the coast. But I think in our case, there's a reason why we're thinking about it before other places are. Yeah, and I think it, it, there's soil quality, there's, you know, rural quality of life challenges that, mm-hmm. that really make for a nice um, package of, of solutions where, um, you know, it's clear to me that most row crop farmers recognize the writing on the wall and they've got to find another solution mm-hmm. because they're, they're just getting hammered. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, the... I, I, you try to run any kind of farm profitability figures, and it's, it's as an investor, it's nauseating. It's crazy. Yeah, I was in Colorado last week, and um, you know they've had very little rain and snow out there this year, and so um, you know it's all it's all about in order to produce food in Colorado. Um, you have to buy water rights, which are way more expensive, actually, if they're good ones, than the land itself. Mm-hmm. And it may not actually get you any water after, you know, if it keeps not raining yeah. like this. And this is something that they, is right in front of them. And they're talking about, 
you know, if we're going to go to a land trust or somebody to and have a conservation easement, we can't for farming in the future. We can't um, exclude hardscapes like we used to because um, we're going to need to put in indoor food production on a massive scale. Mm -hmm. Exactly. This is people are talking about this now, not you know, twenty no, years from now, years not a hundred exactly years right. from now. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, it's major. It's major. Uh, Major, major. So yep. there's a lot of work to do, man. I'm so glad you've, um, you know, gotten into the food world. I'm we very need people like you. Well, and, and to have folks like yourself that have gone before, right, and, and forged the path for mm -hmm. us to be able to, to identify the challenges and, and work on stuff, I think um, it, it's really exciting to me, given how important this is to everyone in the region and how um, seriously we're all taking it that people are trying to find solutions that really meet a broad range of needs right. um, in, a, in, a, in a coordinated fashion. But what I really like is that it's not, not um, authoritarian approach, right? It's, it's a more kind of democratic or maybe that's a you know, small d democratic approach of, of we know these are the problems. Here's all the different folks that are working. Let's get around the table mm -hmm. and kind of see where we overlap as opposed to, okay, who's going to be in charge and who's going to drive it? Right, right. And, the, and honestly, the problem is too big. The opportunity, you know, I, I'm an entrepreneur. Every problem to me is an opportunity. I look at all this and think, okay, well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, 57 I'm not 27 it's not time for me to be the person pushing the boulder up the mountain again but mm -hmm. that's why I do what I do with other entrepreneurs because it's time for them to do it and, it, and right. yeah yeah exactly. and there are like you said earlier there's a ton of resources for the next startup but there mm -hmm. but small businesses and growing businesses that are not based on a technology kind of hockey stick growth profile have a much harder time getting resources so the, the, the the brighter we can wave your flag, right, and, and, mm -hmm. and the things that you've done to make it clear that you can build a sustainable business that doesn't require a venture capital-like return and you can get resources to be able to get there. So the more people will step off of that real growth treadmill. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I think impact investing and especially nonprofits or mission-driven businesses tend to orient themselves toward that anyway. And they've defaulted to using venture capital type financing because that's how you get a small business finance most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we can, the more we can advertise the model of, no, you can, you can do small business finance that meets your needs. It's some combination of program related investment early on and, and later investment in self-directed IRAs that, that aren't going to ask you to double your value every four years or two years. Then you can, you can really build a good business and, and meet all your goals as opposed to just your financial goals. Right, right. This feels like a conversation that's going to continue over a period of time because I, I think there is so much innovation and so much need for innovation and capital, and it, and it certainly seems like you are um, kind of in the middle of all of it from where you sit right now. Yeah, and that's super valuable to me to hear the entrepreneur's perspective, right? I and mean, you've, you've got a really nice angle because both you've had your personal experience but you're now hearing what, what the, the folks that are coming up through are experiencing and, mm -hmm. and ultimately 
you know, my constituencies are both, right? Right. I need to satisfy both the investors and the entrepreneurs because otherwise the system doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's the thing that, that really excites me about impact investing is that it, it, it is much less one-sided um, in its approach. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm particularly taken by transformed finance principles. Um, there's a kind of a three-pronged approach, which is, the, the, the first principle is that um, the, the community on which it, it is, the investment is, is going to take place or in which the community, the investment is going to take place, has ownership and guidance and, and is engaged in the process as much as possible. Um, there's a second principle is, is there's a specific measurement of be sure of, of value to be sure that more value is put into that organization than is taken out mm-hmm. from, from the investment, which is, a, which is a huge difference from traditional investment. And then the third part is that risk is balanced across the community, the entrepreneur, and the investor. Hmm. Um, and and the, especially those latter two are, are really interesting alignments with uh, impact investing and, and mission-driven businesses because we you try to go out and get traditional finance, you're going to run smack into people that are trying to make a buck. Mm-hmm. And that's all they're trying to do. And so we're trying to find ways to integrate that, those principles into our approach and how we think about the companies that we support and, and the conversations we have with investors so that we, we can build that approach as a um, sort of the, the, the calling card of the impact investment. Mm-hmm. It's so much more tangible than, oh, we just want to do things better, right? Right. Here's a specific way that we can do things better. Right. Engage the community, and whenever possible, they have ownership of what's happening. Right. Um, You know. And it it doesn't mean that you don't get a return on your investment, a financial return. Not at all, right. It just means that you're you're conscious about how that return is balanced and how the risk is balanced. Right. You're not extracting, and you're also not, you know, you know, you're not giving your money away, mm-hmm. um, which is yeah. And I think people don't think that's possible, you know, and that right. it, it they really don't. It's like this fundamental belief. Well, no, you can't have it both ways. Well, actually, you can. Mm-hmm. Right, and we must. Yeah, or, yeah, we must. Um, to survive, we must. So, well, this has been fantastic. Thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. I, I, I look forward to doing it again. Yes. Yes. Thanks. Okay. Cheers. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org. Thank you.